Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. We open your word, Lord. We need your help. And that's an understatement. We need our hearts made to be good soil for the gospel. We need our hearts to be open to you. We need hearts that, that hear your word and rejoice to be taught truth. That's something we don't naturally do, Lord. We need, we need our hearts to be humbled by you. Lord, we need to see a fresh vision of your love for us. Lord, we need a fresh awakening of our love for each other. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do all these things in your word, stuff that only you can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage um, that we're in, we're in Genesis 19, we're in a series called Old Testament Family Reunion, and so we're looking at the lives of Old Testament believers that lived, you know, before the time of Christ, and um, this passage is significantly about drifting, and I just want to read you a passage from Hebrews that talks about drifting. The author of Hebrews says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And that word drift there in Hebrews chapter 2 is a word that was often used as a nautical term, as a ship that maybe at night they put in their anchor, they went to sleep, and the anchor gave way and the boat drifted. It's something that's almost imperceptible, spiritual drifting. And what we're going to see this morning when we're in chapter 19 of Genesis here is a dramatic story of drifting from the Lord. It's a story about Lot. We know that in 2 Peter says that Lot was actually a believing man. He was a, a saved person. And yet we read in Genesis 19 of a terrible um, hypocrisy that had grown in his life and a terrible scandalous fall. And guys, we live in a time with a lot of scandalous falls, don't we? As you look in the media, this Me Too uh, era, you see all kinds of public figures that we see them exposed for who they are, the things that they've been doing, the hypocrisy. We see... Um, People that we thought were a certain way and they're not. I mean, it's been one person after another. And I know sometimes you see a headline, you're like, oh, not that guy too, you know, somebody that you really had valued. Um, but the church is not immune to this. Um, there's been scandal after scandal in the church. Major denominational and movement leaders have been exposed for sexual immorality and financial corruption. I mean, a lot of that's happened just this year. And um, even in our own personal lives, um, Tasha and I, when we were in, in Davis, our pastor who was up there, we had this pastor for four years. It's not Jim, by the way, who preached a few months ago. But we found out in July that that pastor had, um, had been caught in an adulterous affair, and it wasn't the first one. There have been multiple. It's been going on for years. And, you know, just devastating, you know? You get mad. You get sad. You get depressed. You get scared. And, um, he, and you know, it was terrible because you think of what, like, what has happened to his family, his kids, that the people he was involved with, his church. He was a seminary professor, the damage there. I mean, layer after layer of damage that was caused by that. And um, he was, I think, one of the five best living preachers, too. This guy will never preach again, and he should never preach again. But what a waste. And you ask yourself, like, how do these things happen? You know, how do people end up in that situation? How do they end up in years of hypocrisy and ends in scandal? And the, and, and the answer that we get from, from Genesis 19 is, is that it happens gradually. It happens through drifting. So this morning in our Old Testament family reunion, we're going to look at Lot's life, and we're going to see what it looks like to drift, and we're going to see what he can teach us about drifting. And so um, take a look at verse 1. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. The first thing we learn about drifting is that it's gradual. 
In verse 1, we see that Lot is not only living in Sodom, but he's actually got some leadership in Sodom. He's actually in the gate, which is uh, a leader in that city. But Lot didn't start off that way. Lot had slid gradually over years. Lot started off well. He was Abraham's nephew when uh, Abraham was called out of Ur to make that 800-mile trek to the, to the promised land. Uh, Lot went with him, and God blessed them, right? And they had tons of... Um, uh, flocks and herds and, and possessions and things like that. So much so that if you look in Genesis 13, 5, it says that the land could not support both of them, Lot's family and Abraham's family, for their possessions were so great that they couldn't dwell together. And there was strife between their herdsmen over space and land and probably water. And that was the beginning of Lot's drift. Lot never should have separated from Abraham. Um, he never should have separated from the covenant people. It turns out that when Lot lost that anchor of relationship in the people of God, he began to drift, and that's what we see happening. Notice in that passage that both prosperity and conflict can separate the people of God, right? They both did. They had lots of possessions, and they had conflict. That can happen in the church, right? People get um, some prosperity, and maybe there's a new job opportunity or something. It becomes harder for them to, to be with the people of God, and that can separate us, like it separated Lot and Abraham. Or it can be conflict. How many people have been separated from the people of God through unresolved conflict between brothers and sisters in the church, and that began a process of their drifting? And we see both of those happening between Abraham and Lot. Um, Abraham wanting to be a peacemaker, but not really dealing with the core issue, says, you know, in Genesis 13, 8, let there be no strife between me and you and between our herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, and you take the left, and I'll take the right, or if you take the right, I'll take the left. And Lot looks at the two options. One, one of them looks like our area in the summer, right? So there's that option. And then there's another option that looks like maybe, you know, uh, San Luis Obispo or something, right? And he's like, hmm, let me decide. I don't know. You know, and he takes the nice part. Take a look at Genesis 13, 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of God, like Eden. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley. Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, which is the promised land, while Lot settled amongst the cities of the valley, moving his tent as far as Sodom. And so we see his drift. That In that first section there in Genesis 13, 12, it says that Lot um, settled as far as Sodom. In some translations, it says that he pitched his tent facing Sodom. You know, so it starts with him looking. He's looking at that city. He's, he's intrigued by the city. He's interested in the city. Um, you know, what attracted him to this notorious city? Well, we see that he saw that it was well watered. You know, it was prosperous. Um, there was a financial benefit. We'll see later that's what attracted his wife to the city. It was an opportunity to trade his tent for a house and, and build his prosperity even more in this well-watered place, and so he was drawn to it. Lot kept his eyes on Sodom, and as he kept his eyes, his heart became drawn to Sodom, and then pretty soon his feet. Let me ask you this. What do you look at? What are your eyes on? Whatever your eyes are on, your heart's going to follow, and then your feet. Married people, who are you looking at? I think this is super important. We have young church, a lot of young couples and stuff. This is a common problem. Um, but who are you looking at? Who are you looking at on social media? Who are you texting with? Who are you private messaging? You know, who are you having those conversations with? You're drifting. That probably applies to somebody in here. You're drifting. It's your eyes, then your heart, then your feet. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom and eventually ended up living in it. That's what we see in chapter 14. So Lot moves into Sodom, and he has a little scare because um, some marauders come, and they beat up on Sodom, and they take Lot and his possessions away. And then his uncle, Abraham, finds out about this. They're not too far away, apparently. He finds out about this, and he goes and he rescues him. 
is a warning, right? This is a warning to Lot. Shouldn't be living there, but he continues to live there. He goes back to live there. And then by the time we get to verse 1 of chapter 19, it says that the angels met him and that Lot was sitting in the gate. When it says sitting in the gate, that means that he had some authority. It was the leaders that sat in the gate. It was a place where they would, you know, judge cases or make important decisions. And so Lot had become quite prosperous in Sodom, and his, his affluence gave him influence. And now he's there in the gates. He's actually uh, not just lives there, but he's there approving of what's happening there. And keep that in mind. If he's a leader in there and he's in the gates, he's approving of the things that happen in that city. And we know that Lot was no reformer in Sodom. Lot kept his mouth shut about the evils of Sodom because he was profiting from it. And we know that from verse 9. When Lot finally says something about the crimes of Sodom, what do they say to him? They said, this fellow's come to sojourn and he's become our judge? Apparently he never gave a fuss about it before. And they're shocked and they're upset. So what were the sins of Sodom? I think you guys all think you know, but there's more than you know to it. In, um, in Jude 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Two things you have there. You have heterosexual sin with that uh, immorality, sexual immorality. It's talking just generally about any kind of sexual gratification outside the covenant of marriage. But there was another thing there, too. It says pursued unnatural desire. That's the Bible's way of talking about homosexuality. And so we see that in other passages, too, that there was homosexuality in that city. But that's not the only thing we see in that city, right? What happens a little bit later in this chapter is not some sort of homosexual relationships, right? No, it's actually assault, right? This was a city that sexual assault or rape was so common that Lot was afraid to let those guys sleep in the town square. He knew exactly what would happen to them. And there's more. Um, in Ezekiel 16, 49, it says, Behold, this was the guilt of Sodom. Sodom had pride, excess food, prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before the Lord, so I removed them when I saw it. So Sodom is a, a wicked city in whole. I don't think we want to say it's just one thing. There certainly is the sin of homosexuality, but this is a sin. This is a city of sexual assault. This is a city of great immorality and great economic immorality too, right? This is a place where the strong live proud and gluttonous and greedy, and they victimize the poor and weak, both financially and sexually. This is a terrible place. I mean, there's a reason why God destroyed it. God doesn't generally, in our era, completely destroy cities. There was a, this is a very immoral place. And we know from 2 Peter 2 that Lot was a true believer living in this city. And then it bothered him. This is the interesting part. You wouldn't know this if you just read Genesis 19. But if you look at what Peter says, you find out what's going inside of him. He's not having a good time there. Listen to this. Righteous Lot. That, you wouldn't have put that on him either, would you? Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man lived among them day by day. And listen to this. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he heard and sought. So internally, he's super bothered by it, as any believer would be. But Lot just stood by and let it happen. Even as somebody that was in the gates and it was a leader, he was somebody that just let these things happen. Guys, drift happens gradually. Lot's drift was gradual. Secondly, when we drift, God rescues us. I think this is so interesting. That's also in verse 1. Look at it. He says these two angels showed up in the city. They've come to rescue him. In chapter 18, before the angels came down to, to Sodom to, to get Abraham out and to judge it, do you remember what happened? There was a little bit of a bartering going on there. Do you remember that? So um, the angels come. They talk to Abraham about him having a kid. And then as they're leaving, they're like, should we hide from Abraham what we're about to do? 
and they decide to tell him. And so they tell him what they're going to do. They're going to destroy the city. And what is, how does Abraham respond? Do you remember? He goes, what if there's 50 righteous? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? There's no way a God of justice would destroy a whole city if there's 50 righteous people. And God goes, yeah, I'll spare it for 50 righteous people. And then what does he do? Classic Jewish haggling. What if I was five people short? Right? Classic. You can almost hear the accent. He's doing like, what about 45, you know? And he's like, he's like, I wouldn't destroy it for 45. And he's all, let's say I was 10 people short. What about 40? I won't destroy it for 40. I know I shouldn't do this, but what about 30? And God's like, no, no, for 30, I would not destroy it. 20. I wouldn't destroy it for 20. He gets all the way down to 10. He like haggles him down like he's at some sort of a swap meet or something. But there weren't even 10 righteous people in that city, but there was one family that the angels had come to rescue. So God rescues us from our drifting. There's something you need to hear about drifting is that no truly born-again believer will ever be eternally lost from drifting. God won't allow it. He always goes after his drifting children. In John 10, 27, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life. And then listen to this, And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God will not allow us to drift until we're eternally lost. He always goes after his children, after his drifting kids. He eventually will bring them back. But it doesn't mean that you, you get saved and you live in Sodom the rest of your life and die. It's that God intervenes. He comes into Sodom and he rescues you out of it. He will always come after his drifting kids. And look at how God delivers Lot. First, I love this. He exposes his double life. He's living a double life. Look at verse 1 again. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and, the, and Lot was sitting in the gates of Sodom. And Lot saw them, and he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself to his face before them. This had to be super awkward for Lot, okay? Lot has been living this double life, and now Lot's being visited by angels, which is great. This is like the best thing that can happen to you in the Old Testament would be for angels to show up and and hang out with you. It's a great opportunity, right? But the problem is it's exposing his double life. He sees his sin really clearly when angels show up, right? Lot knows exactly what happens to two foreign travelers by themselves visiting his city at night. He knows exactly what happened. He knows they're going to be sexually assaulted. And, and Lot knows this. As a leader, he's always looked the other way. But now God's confronting him. He's making him see his, his double life here. And now these two angels, he can't look the other way. God's exposing his double life. So what will Lot do? I mean, he could immediately go, Lord, I shouldn't be here. Confess his sin. You know, repent. Ask for forgiveness. Leave with him. That'd be the best way to go, right? But Lot's not done living in Sodom. He wants to try and have it both ways. He wants to have both lives, right? He wants to continue in a double life. Look at verse 2. He says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, and they turned aside and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And he must have thought, Lot must have been going like, Phew! That was close. I'll just bring him to my house. I'll keep him safe, feed him. Early in the morning, we get him out of here. I do my religious duty, and I get to keep living in my sin. Win-win. It won't work, brother. It won't work, does it? Take a look. God's too jealous for that. You can't serve two masters. Look at verse 4. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men? 
who came to you tonight. Bring them out that we may know them. Now, that's sexually know them. So Lot's thinking, okay, well, I'll reason with them. I can still do this. I can still, somehow I'm going to kind of live both lives. Look at verse 7. Lot went out to the, to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. And he said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters that have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you that you may do whatever you want with them. Only do, not, do nothing to these men, for they have come under my roof. But they said, stand back. They said, this fellow has come to sojourn, and he has become our judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man, Law, and drew near to breaking the door down. This just shows the grotesque lengths to which people will go to continue living in a double life, right? And the deranged thinking. He offers his daughters to him. You know, certainly that'll take care of it. He's desperate to live his double life. Lot hadn't just moved into Sodom, guys. Sodom moved into Lot, right? Lot, and that twisted logic of the city was in him. If you're a believer, guys, one of the things we can learn from Genesis 19 is that God's going to expose your double life. And we all go down a road to this to some degree where we try to live two ways. But the further we go down the road, the further we know that we're inviting God to expose it. He will confront it. He will expose it. That's what happened a lot here. And then what else does God do to deliver him? He gives him a way out. Look at verse 10. The men reached out their hands and brought Lot. These are the angels. Brought him into the house and shut the door and struck the people outside with blindness, both small and great, and they can't find the door, right? And then God warns them. Look at verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. But he lingered. It's the weirdest thing, isn't it? Look at verse 16. It says, But he lingered. And so what happened? Then God drags him out. This is so great. So the men seized, the angel seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. They had to drag him in the end. He was so drawn to this place. Why did God rescue Lot? What does it say in verse 16? He was merciful to him. Lot was not righteous. <laughs> Lot was not rescued because he was, you know, living for the Lord and he was you know, the best person in town or anything like that. He was saved because God was merciful. And he had to be dragged out. And why was God merciful? Look at verse 29. It says that the reason why God was merciful is because he remembered Abraham. What did he remember of Abraham? What was God remembering? He was remembering his covenant to Abraham. God had made a covenant to Abraham and all those who were in his family and were a part of the covenant that he would never leave them or forsake them right? That he would rescue them. This is Yahweh fulfilling his covenant to his people, coming into this wicked city and pulling this very resistant man out. God rescues us from our drifting. But the other thing we see in Lot's life is that our drifting is very costly. Because I, I wouldn't want you to just rest and like, God rescues us from our drifting. What we can learn from Genesis 19 is that Drifting is extremely costly. Though no true Christian will ever be lost eternally, the cost of drifting from the Lord is immense. And we see that in Lot's life, the drifting, the cost of it. It costs him his sons-in-law. Look at verse 14. Lot went to his sons-in-law to warn him, right? Who were married to his daughters. And he said this to him, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this city. And then what does it say? But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be kidding. And this is one of the ways we know that Lot kept his mouth shut about the Lord. Because he's never talked this way to them before. 
All of a sudden, he's talking about salvation and judgment and the Lord and repentance and all these things. And, and they think he's joking. Not crazy? He lost his witness because of his drifting, and he'd also lost his sons-in-law because of it. His drifting cost him his wife. Look at verse 15. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest they be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by hand, and the Lord, being merciful to him, brought him out and set him outside the city. And as he brought them out, one of them said, Escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to him, and this is crazy, by the way, guys. He's got suggestions. Lot said, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. If <laughs> It's crazy. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near for me to flee. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And, his, and, and my life will be saved. And, he said, and then he said, Behold, I will grant you this favor also. I will not overthrow the city to which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zor. And the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew the cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And you think like, what was she looking back for? You know? I think we need to think about what, what was it? Was it the immorality of the city? Like, what was the thing she wanted of the city? And actually, Jesus gives us a hint to that in Luke 17. I think he tells us what she, the reason why she looked back. It says this, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, there will be eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on that day, when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will seek it. I think that's what's going on there, is that Jesus is hinting there that it was her goods. It was the material prosperity of that city. She couldn't leave it. She didn't want to leave it behind. Um, Ezekiel 16 tells us that city had a real reputation for affluence, but it was a, it was a city whose affluence was, was built on victimizing the poor. And Lot's, wife, Lot's drifting cost him his wife. She loved the prosperity too much. Can I say a word to you husbands here, uh, or those who will be husbands? Where are you leading your wife? Where are you leading your family? It says in Ephesians 5, it says that the husband is the head of the wife, meaning that there is a leadership position that husbands have been given over their families, not to be domineering, but to lead servant leadership over their, over their wives. And I just want to tell you guys, there is a, you husbands, there is a lot more riding on the state of your spiritual life than just you. A lot more. And it's important that you hear that. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve had sinned, what does God ask? He goes, where are you? And the you there in the Hebrew is singular, and who answers? And so will you. You'll be that Adam that, that answers for your family. You'll answer for the state and direction of your own family. Now, everybody in your family answers for their own sin, but you'll answer for the direction that you've led your family in. How are you leading them? And I think this is super important for men to realize because it has a huge effect on how they lead. Um, 
when I bought, I'm a veterinarian, I'm a horse vet, and when I bought my truck down in, in San Diego, when I got it, it was, um, you know, real nice and everything like that, and uh, so I was starting to drive it home, I'm on the freeway, and the thing's like, it's a, it's a 350, and it was like bouncing like crazy, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my teeth on the way home, and, um, but, but I knew that it, once I put the vet pack in there, the, this big weight that goes in there that's got all my drawers and stuff, I knew that once I put it in there, it would ride smooth. That's you guys. That's husbands. Is it when you realize the weight of spiritual responsibility that God has on you, you will drive so much smoother. I've seen it over and over again where husbands finally see that they're not just 50% of the direction of the home or they're not there to just be a passenger. You know, they're there to spiritually lead their family. It's so cool. It's like that weight going in that pickup. It's like, drive so smooth now, right? So where are you leading your family? Um, do you pray daily over your wife and your kids? Are you daily in God's word so that you can be the best possible leader for your family? Once you realize that you're in charge of being spiritual leader of your family, what does it do? You start reading, you start studying, you start looking to see you be the, you're the pastor of your home. How's that pastoring going? Does your wife, does your wife and your kids, do they see you in the word and applying it to yourself first? Anybody can be the dad that throws verses at other people, but do they see you applying that word to yourself first? Do they see you as the servant in that family? That's what gives you the ability to lead. It's servant leadership. And, and do your wife and your kids see you enthusiastic about church? That rubs off big time. A lot of families, they go through the high school years and stuff like that, and everything gets in the way. There's travel ball. There's all this stuff. It gets in the way. And then their kids go off to college, and they don't go to church. The parents are like, why don't you go to church? Well, you know, I'm busy with school and all this stuff. They're just doing what you taught them right? They're doing what you taught them. You taught them that if anything was busy or difficult, you didn't go. And so they don't go. Now you can, um, you can do all this and still have a very messed up home, <laughs> right? That could happen. You could do all those things and have a very messed up home, but at least you'll know that you didn't mess it up, <laughs> right? That was something that was beyond your control. Lot here has messed his own home up. Lot here has led his family into Sodom, and his wife has grown attached to the prosperity of Sodom. That's exactly where he led her. And so look at all that you say or do, men, and ask yourself, where am I leading my family? You're only leading them one of two places. And passivity is drifting, and we know where drifting ends up. Drifting also cost him his daughters. Okay, this is the most like gruesome of the whole thing, and we'll just read it. Verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For they were afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, that we might lie with him and preserve our offspring from our father. So they made their father drunk with wine that night, and the firstborn lay, went in and laid with his, her father. He did not know when she had laid down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I laid last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine again also tonight. Then you may go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and laid with him. And he did not know when she had laid down and when she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn of the, the firstborn bore a son, calling his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. 
you might think to yourself, like, so this is super gruesome. Um, what motivated them to do this? Do you see it in the text? It wasn't lust that motivated them to do this. It was financial security. Take a look at it. It says that we may preserve our offspring. In that day, having children was the way to secure your future. Your children were your um, retirement plan. Your children were your financial safety net. And so childless, unmarried women like these were headed to poverty. And so Lot and his, Lot's daughters were motivated to incest by financial security, which is another way of just saying they were worshiping the family idol, right? This was the place that the family had always gone. It was always about financial security. It was always about prosperity. And they worshiped the family God, and it, this is what came of it. So drifting costs Lot immensely. Um, lastly, drifting accelerates in isolation. You know, how did, how did Lot's daughters get to this depth of deranged thinking? I mean, keep in mind that even all the cultures of the valley opposed incest. So they had, like, stooped to a level that, like, none of the pagan nations, not even Sodom, was for that, right? How did this happen? Well, when the angels sent Lot out of Sodom, they told him to flee to the hills, right? And Lot didn't want to go to the hills. He, he wasn't done with Sodom, so he said, can I move to the little Sodom? <laughs> there was a little town in the area called Zoar, which was kind of a miniature Sodom. He's like, let me go there. And the Lord surprisingly allowed it. And then, the, and then Lot, strangely, doesn't end up living there. It said he was afraid to live there. Now, he, whether he's afraid of the people that live there or he's afraid God's going to judge that place, I don't know. But he didn't trust that God would protect him. And so they flee the, into the hills and they live in a cave in isolation. And there in the isolation of the cave, they're drifting accelerated. Drifting accelerates in isolation. Let me ask you this. What should Lot have done? I mean, we could say it all through his life. But let's just say, once Sodom's destroyed, they're out of the city, what's Lot's next best move? Where? He should have returned to Abraham, right? He should have returned to the covenant people, right? I mean, he had that opportunity. Um, Abraham and the covenant people, if they, if they went to live there, Lot and his daughters would have been reminded of the promises of God. They would have benefited from the word of God. They would have benefited from the unique, special presence of God there. In that covenant community, Lot's daughters would not have had to worry about childlessness. And this whole grisly thing would have been avoided. This story, guys, reminds us, too, that, that isolating ourselves from the sinful world will not isolate us from sin. Okay? They get out of Sodom, but they brought plenty of Sodom with them. Right? Um, here they are isolated, and they're in, in this situation because, guys, just... And a lot of families make this mistake. They think, well, you know what? I'll just isolate. We'll isolate ourselves from the world. We'll bunker up. But you guys realize that in every human heart, there's seed enough to grow a whole city of Sodom. Every human heart. It's not just a solution to isolate yourself from the world. We bring it with us. Lot and his daughters needed the covenant community of Abraham and his family. Turns out that we all need that anchor of believing friends to keep us from drifting from the Lord. And that's what they needed. And Abraham and his family were available and willing. It isn't like he's a million miles away. He, in verse 27, it says, Abraham was close enough to watch the smoke from Sodom. Like, so it's not like, it's like, we can't find him, you know? Like, they knew where he was. They knew where he'd gone. He was available. And we know that Abraham was always game to help his nephew Lot out. Remember, he got kidnapped and Lot went to battle for him. I mean, Lot, Abraham is available to help him. So why didn't he go? Why do you guys think that Lot didn't go back to Abraham? Shame would be a huge one, right? What else? Shame's a huge one. I think it's a big one. Pride, right? Very related. Sense maybe of unworthiness. 
Maybe there's fear. Maybe he kind of resents Abraham, right? All these things are things that keep us from the body, guys. Um, maybe it was Lot's shame, you know? How, how can I face Abraham after I've made it this huge wreck of my life? People think that, and then they're like, I, don't, I can't go back to church. Look at what I've done to my life, right? But you guys are missing the point. The point is that we're all wrecks in need of grace, right? We're all wrecks in need of grace. And there's nothing that you've fallen into that we, we couldn't imagine ourselves falling into. We need the community. Or was it Lot's sense of unworthiness? You know, I'm just not in the right place right now to join God's people. I need to kind of get myself fixed up first. Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt that way on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning? I just need to get my heart right first. My heart's just not right to be with God's people right now. What's the error in that? This would be a great place to get your heart right, right? I mean, this is God's designed gathering to get your heart right. So come when your heart's not right. We like that. God likes that. He'll fix it. Was it fear? You know, what will Abraham say when he hears what I've done, right? Could have been fear. I don't know what Abraham would have done, but I'll tell you what we will do when somebody confesses severe sin to one of us. We celebrate it as an evidence of God's grace. Not your sin, your confession. When somebody confesses serious sin within the body, it's a time to celebrate that God's at work. Because if you live in a kind of community where somebody can call and just confess, they don't have to get caught. They can be like, hey, I've been living this double life. This is what's going on. I need help. That is an awesome work of God. That's an awesome work of God. And so we're going to celebrate that as an evidence of God's grace. We're going to rally around to help you. Was it Lot's resentment for Abraham? Remember, they had had some conflict in the past. Did Lot see Abraham as judgmental or self-righteous or a hypocrite, right? Oh, that self-righteous Abraham. Can't go back to him right now. That guy's always judging me, right? Sometimes people think that way about the church. They think, oh, you know, people at church, they're just hypocrites. They're just putting on a show, right? That's something that keeps us away from God's people. I'll tell you what, I can't speak for every church, but I can speak for the body here and the people here. And when I look out, and I know you guys really well, most of you, I know you very well. Um, I don't look out and see a whole bunch of hypocrites, what I see is a bunch of people that are tremendously burdened by all kinds of difficulties, trying with all their might by the power of the Holy Spirit to live for Christ. That's what I see when I look out. And so if you're seeing hypocrites, you don't know these people. That's the enemy playing with your mind. The enemy would love for you to be a great fault finder with God's people. It's divide and conquer, right? That's the way he works. When I look out at the people in this church, I'll just tell you because I know, I'm not going to name names, but I know there's tremendous financial burdens here. I know there's tremendous marriage struggles here, big ones. I know there's severe hardships in parenting and discouragement. I know there's people that are super lonely and they deal with loneliness constantly. I know there's massive career disappointments. I know there's people here that battle faithfully, but they battle constantly with lust. I know there's guys that battle here and women here that battle constantly, but faithfully with same-sex attraction. I know there's multiple people here that deal with things like rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia pain, Crohn's disease. We have multiple people with cancer. We have multiple people with failing vision and hearing. We have people in our church that deal with bipolar disorder, OCD, depression, panic attacks, anxiety. When you know all this stuff, it's like you go like, how does this work? The amount of burdens, the amount of weight, and yet you see people coming and worshiping God and striving to serve other people, which is the amazing thing. It's like you're burdened with all that and you want to serve other people. It's amazing. And so if you have the temptation to think like, oh, I'm not going to go there. There's just a bunch of hypocrites. You don't know these people. You have no idea what they're going through. The weights are tremendous and yet they're striving after God. And you know what? They would love to serve and minister to you and they would love you to serve and minister to them. 
Guys, it's one of Satan's tactics to divide and conquer. I brought this up before, but you guys all know those nature documentaries in the Arctic Circle, and you're watching the caribou, it's like a real pretty shot with the tundra, and they're falling along, right, and the caribou are all happy. And then what? Music changes, wolves come, right? And I think they put the wolves in there or something, but the wolves come, and they're chasing them, and the caribou are like this, and the wolves are behind, everything's going well, right? And then one of them goes, I think I'm going to go this way. What happens? You're just like dead. Dead! There's no way that one's going to live, right? That's what Satan wants to do. It's divide and conquer, and that's what he did with Lot. Guys, drifting is accelerated by isolation. And so if you've drifted, if you've been living a double life, you need the church. You need God's people. And guys, we need you. We need you. We need both the gathering of the church, and we need friendships in the church. In Hebrews, it says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's what Lot needed, right? For not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, as, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews also said that it's in the gathering of the church that we taste the powers of the age to come. Isn't that amazing? God meets with us in a unique way in the Sunday morning gathering or Sunday whatever time gathering. Um, the preached word, the Lord's Supper, we take it every week because we believe that God actually feeds us through this meal. Um, worship, we actually meet God in a special way as we worship together. I'm so thankful for the call to worship this morning. Um, we we grow closer together and minister to each other as we serve. You know, when you do some like children's ministry, you're doing with somebody else, you serve together, you grow together, right? Through prayer. I love, if you need prayer afterwards, you guys will get around, uh, a group will get around and pray for you. We love praying for healing here. We've seen tremendous responses to that. So if there's something you're dealing with that you need prayer for, let's gather a group around and we'll pray for you. Like it says in James, anoint you with oil. We won't like pour it over your head or anything. It's just a little bit here, a little bit there. It's not scary. And we'll pray for you because it's amazing how God, and, and for whatever reason, as we gather, we see more and more evidence of God's work. Sunday morning is a, a time that God has designed to keep us from drifting. Sunday morning is a time that God has designed to anchor our soul to him and stop us from drifting. God designed it. Because I think we live in our age now where we're like, you know, got all these choices, we're very consumeristic, and we're like, you know, oh, Sunday morning, why, why, you know, we could do it all these other ways. God designed this. We didn't design this. Did you guys realize that? People think we designed it. We didn't design it. God designed it. Um, we also need friendships in the church. The writer of Hebrews says this too. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Right? It's like a lot. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you have friends like that? You need friends like that. I'm not going to make you feel bad about not having friends like that. I'm just saying you need friends like that. You need to seek out Friends like that. Do you have people that you do that for and, and people that do that for you? You need it or you'll drift. Um, drifting is accelerated by isolation. We were called to live in a community, not a cave. That's the big problem with Lot is he's living in a cave. He's not living in the community. Drifting is accelerated in isolation. We need each other to finish well. Our culture is very individualistic, but th- it doesn't work that way at all. The Bible's clear on this. A lot of people say, well, you know, my faith is, is private. It's not. Your faith is personal, but it was never designed to be private. We're a community. God's created us as a family. Um, let's finish this up. So, so Genesis 19 ends pretty bleak, right? Uh, Lot's daughters have two sons from their time in the cave, fathered by their own father. And there's Moab is one of them, and Ben-Ami is the other one. And these two boys grow up to be two pagan nations. Now, you guys don't grasp this, but this is a disaster for Lot. 
His whole family line has become two pagan nations. He has no part in the covenant community of his offspring. All the rest destroyed, and all he's got here is two pagan nations. And those two nations continue to harass Israel, right? We see that in the book of Deuteronomy and Numbers, that they harass Israel. But what's really cool is Lot's line does get redeemed. You have to just wait a few centuries to see it. He didn't get to see it. About a thousand years after the baby Moab was born, from that incestuous um, relationship, there was a, there was, uh, from, from Lot and his daughters, two poor, vulnerable women walk into a little town in Israel. And it was this little town that was west of the Dead Sea. And one of the women was Jewish, and the other one was a Moabite. The other one was a descendant of Lot, right? And unlike Sodom, those two women were safe in that town. When they came to that place and they found hospitality, you know why? Because there was a righteous man in the gates whose name was Boaz. And righteous, and righteous Boaz, he gave these women help and generosity, and eventually he married um, the Moabite woman whose name was Ruth. And the cool thing is that by that, Lot's line got back into the covenant family. Isn't that cool? That would have meant a ton to him. I don't know if anybody's told him yet. But his line was now reintegrated in the covenant community. And not only that, but Lot's line from Ruth and Boaz became led to King David, greatest king of Israel, was from now Lot's line through the Moabite woman. And then even further from there, um, Ruth and, uh, and, Ruth and uh, Boaz became the great, 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 great grandparents of another king, King Jesus. The amazing thing is, guys, is that King Jesus, God in the flesh, saw fit to be born with the incestuous Moabite blood in his veins. That's amazing. That's amazing. There's a line from you too that says, it's because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Isn't that cool? That grace, God's grace can redeem something like that. And so you have King Jesus walking around with that blood of that incestuous relationship, that Moabite relationship in him. And 2,000 years after those angels entered that wicked city of Sodom to rescue Lot, Jesus entered a, a wicked city to rescue you. You know, the destruction of Sodom in the New Testament is often used as an image for the final judgment, for the judgment of this whole world. But what's really cool is that those angels, they came in to destroy Sodom because there weren't even 10 righteous people, but Jesus entered this world because there's no one righteous, no, not one. Jesus came here the first time not to destroy it, but to rescue us. Jesus came to rescue us. Jesus came to offer his sinless life on the cross for us. Jesus came and he traded his devoted life for our drifting life. That record of a drifting life you have, he exchanged for his devoted life. On the cross, he paid for all of your sins completely. It cost him his life. Three days later, he's raised from the dead. And now Jesus enters this city today to rescue you. Today, Jesus is reaching out his pierced, resurrected hand to you. And he wants to pull you out of your sin to safety. And all Jesus asks is that you would leave your sin, leave your Sodom. He wants you to leave your sin and trust in him. Grab hold of his hand and trust in him for salvation. What will you do with Jesus' offer of rescue? Will you treat it like a joke? Like the sons-in-law did? Will you linger like Lot did? Will you turn your back like Lot's wife? Or will you take Jesus' hand as the greatest gift you've ever seen and be delivered? That's what he's asking this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for even the very dark parts of your word. Lord, as we read this chapter, we know that this chapter is designed to do something in our hearts 
that really no other chapter in Scripture can do. Lord, you've designed this to warn us about drifting. And Lord, I pray that no matter where we are here, whether we're in a good place, we've been walking close with you, or a drift has begun, or we've been drifting for a long time, or Lord, we could just say, I'm living a double life. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us back to yourself. Lord, it's your kindness that leads to repentance. It's seeing your son, Jesus Christ, enter that wicked city and be nailed on a cross for us. Lord, the mob did whatever they wanted with your son. And yet you had determined for that to be our way of salvation. We thank you, Lord, that your son, Jesus, was willing and actually desired to come and do that work for us. Lord, as we worship, we pray that we would worship as people who are in awe and amazed by that grace. Lord, the grace that could take that Moabite line and redeem it. That's what we need. We're such a mess of sin. And we need you to redeem us and make us new. We thank you that you do that. Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, we pray that you bless that time, that it would be a true time of repentance and receiving and reviving. Lord, I thank you for all these people that you brought here today. I pray that not one of them would leave without knowing in a deeper way your love for them personally. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.